Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 99%. My name is Jesse Vondracek, coach of Top Step Training. I'm here with Marilyn. Hey, guys. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. You can find everything with me at mcc.coach. And Elliot. Hey, everybody. Elliot Bassett with uh, Mountain Endurance, mtnendurance.com is the best way to find me, um, or Elliot Bassett, et cetera, on the internet in general. Jeeves, you sound awesome. like you're being held hostage, and I know you're not. Uh, it's just my voice. <laughs> okay. Great to have you guys here. Um, Marilyn just finished up a race, first time in a while to be in a triathlon. Uh, congrats on finishing St. George. How did it go for you? Thanks. Yeah, it was really fun to be back out on a race course with everyone. It has been ages. We were working it out before the race. It had been since... 2010 since I even swam in a race in a wetsuit so that's a bit of time that's passed for sure and really really fun to be back out there with everyone um so break it down even further give us give us some times how'd you swim bike and run and then how'd you feel about it times yeah swim swim was long I you know what we're we're really going to dive into expectations in this podcast which I think is you know good to when it's fresh in my mind, have just done a race. So I had expected based on my training without even swimming open water and in a wetsuit and in a race since 2010, I had expected to swim right around 35 minutes. I swam a little over, it was like 36 something, almost 37 minutes. And then I have been racing my bike for again, for the last number of years. So let's, let's, let's pause there for a second, I guess, since, uh, since you gave us an exact time and your expectation, yeah. um, since that's what this podcast is about, right? We are going to talk about coming up with realistic expectations for how you're going to perform in the race. And you were like, you know, within what, like one or 2% off that on your expectation for the swim. How'd you come up with that? Time. Yeah. So you know what, what, what made it actually slightly off, I think I would have hit the nail on the head somewhere around 34, 35, except for I was so out of practice, open water with the sun in my eyes that I stopped a ridiculous, an embarrassingly amount of times. Like, I mean, it was, it was like, I was, had never done a triathlon before. I kept stopping because I couldn't see anything. And I was absolutely sure that I was just zigzagging all over the place or not even headed towards a buoy. And instead of just doing what you're supposed to do, which is swim, just, just keep swimming. I was, you know, stopping all over the place, trying to figure out where the boys were. And I finally just completely stopped, cleared my goggles because they were really foggy. And once I could see even just a little bit, I, I then got into just, you know, getting my shit together basically and kept swimming continuously and then on the way back I stopped once just got a got a huge lung full of water so had I not been mucking around with just you know lack of practice in the sun and open water then I think I would have been right on that mark 34 35 and I set that expectation based on I know when I was racing full time, I used to swim in a half right around 30, 31. And in order for me to do that, I was swimming, you know, six days a week, three to five K sets. Now, granted, I was also training for an Ironman at that time, but I knew I could swim long course meters. Let's say an example might be in a pool, long course meters, 
you know, 30 by 100, leaving on 145, coming in on 130. And when I could do that, that would equate to right around a one hour swim in an Ironman or, you know, around a 30, 31 minute half Ironman. And for this race, I was swimming twice a week and I was doing it socially with a really close girlfriend of mine and she's quite a fast swimmer and I can't quite keep up on her pace time. So I was using gear the whole time, fins, paddles, buoys, and wasn't really getting, you know, when you've only granted the swims are long, they were three, four K workouts, but I knew, you know, I knew in, in the heart of hearts, I wasn't actually doing the work that was required to swim a decent for me, like, and even if I had swam three or four days a week and done two of them with my friend that were all with gear on her pace times, and the other two were more focused, you know, threshold touch and go or, you know, swims that were pure swims legit on pace times for me. I think I even then might have swam 33, 34. But because I knew I was, you know, I'm swimming twice a week, three, 4K, mostly with gear. So that's assisted swimming on someone else's you know, rain that I'd been in the water consistently twice a week and you get a bit, you definitely aren't getting no work when you're doing that. So I knew, okay, I'm like, well, I think just based off of consistently swimming twice a week, I can swim right around 35 minutes for this. And, you know, I think when you plan your races, you have to be and, and someone else might be, oh, you race professionally, you've been swimming all year, you know, you swim 4K sets, and they might get skewed and, and lean towards, oh, you're going to swim 32. And I'm like, well, that's just not realistic. That's not in line at all with what, I, what I'm doing. You know, when you swim a whole swim set with fins and paddles, that's not, <laughs> I might be swimming 4K, but I'm swimming assisted 4K. That's not the same thing. So you got to keep your expectations in line with that. That's a long ramble. Sorry. Uh, no, that was good. There, there are two things I really want to pull out of that. And I know that Elliot wants to touch on this later. Um, but one thing you, you kind of talked about is the difference between your swim expectation and what happened was basically execution, right? How you executed the swim, it, that really was like what changed. It wasn't your fitness. It wasn't anything to do with probably how fast you were swimming when you were swimming. It was just how you executed that open water swim. And that's what really made you deviate from exactly what you thought to what you actually did. And like, I mean, I, I know a minute and a half or whatever it was, isn't that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. But I think that piece is, is something that people often miss as far as like, well, this is what I can do in training. And then they, they kind of make that leap of that direct correlation to this is now what I can do on a race course. And, you know, especially on, on the swim, if you're only ever swimming in a pool or like only ever swimming short course, you know, that, that's not a one-to-one -one comparison to exactly how it's going to play out in open water. And I mean, I think you have a lot of experience in the pool and open water in your, in your career. So you're probably a little bit better at judging that than maybe someone who's newer as far as like what that feels like in the pool and how that is going to translate. Um, and even though you didn't talk about like any say like um, test sets you did in the swim to see where you're at, it sounds like you just probably had a pretty good idea of what you felt like in the water. And even though you're swimming a lot of it aided, a, a pretty good idea of like what that feeling in the water and that like knowing your volume, what that would correlate to on the actual race course. Yeah. And I think that just comes with so much experience, right? I mean, that's where, 
you know, someone will say, well, you're going to go fast because of your history. Well, that's not a guarantee. You still got to do the work to go fast, period. But what you do have when you have two decades of experience is knowing <laughs> good or bad, you know what it feels like to be in form to really go fast or not. And then you know how to pace accordingly and set your expectations based on what you've been doing. So yeah, I didn't need to do any specific tests set like a, a a set that gave me any kind of indicators. I just knew based on what I was doing from week to week and the paces that I was coming in on the pool and what I was doing. I was like, that was a test set in itself. Every single time I swam, I knew, you know. So um, on the, the note of test set, I think the more experience one has and the more in tune with their body and, and with racing, I think essentially every set kind of becomes a test set like even in some sense like an easy long run if you're getting ready in your case you just did a half iron man right Marilyn you're like well this is what 13 easy miles feels like and it's it's a test set right like I don't know you were talking to us off air a couple weeks ago about your run prep heading into the race and I kind of got that that you were you didn't even say it out loud but I think we all just kind of nodded and agreed and you were like that was your test set is that a fair statement for you Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, exactly. You know, yeah. With the more experience you get, you just, you have a really good idea based on the train and it's not even experience. I think this is something that we want everyone to take from this podcast. And we're trying, we're going to, as we dig through this is teach everyone is that what you do in training, what is that correlation to the race field. And hopefully we're going to give enough examples and takesaways that people have a bit better idea of how to how to set that expectation. Like what does that when you look at your training, how do you realistically figure out what it is that you're going to do in the race? Not based on, you know, history or how do you take your history into account? Where does it play in your favor and where does it is it not relevant no matter how much experience you have. But I do think that to your point, Elliot, is that when you do have a lot of experience, the more you just understand every single time you train, it is essentially, unless it's just an easy, you know, an easy spin or something, it is a test set in quotations. So I guess sticking with the swim specifically, do you guys use anything for your maybe less experienced athletes to help give them an idea? Like, uh, you know, and maybe we're not always using the word test set, but like a set, they might say, hey, like this might be indicative of a pace you're going to swim in the race. Not at all, but I do a lot of things where I try to make sure people are confident in the fact that they can swim at a certain kind of rhythm or breathing pattern. And they're really confident in the distance so that they know how much to exert themselves for, depending on their pace, you know, 22 to 45 minutes. Um, and and then, you know, obviously like th there's kind of like chunks, right? Like, so if you're talking to a professional, it's more of, you don't talk, it's, it's whatever, 22 to 30, depending on where they're at and wherever they might, might be in the, in the time band. And so sure, you know, within like five-ish minutes, but you're also talking about open water, the number of times a buoy has been put off course. I mean, an athlete I coached recently did a race where they were supposed to do two laps and they got out after one and they said, uh, we accidentally set up a 2k course instead of a 1k course. So like they didn't know they were, they were done with the swim until they got out and they were thinking that was the longest first lap of my life. Um, and so stuff like that happens in triathlon. 
And, well, that in particular was pretty, pretty wild. But the point being is every course is a little bit different. And so time in open water is essentially irrelevant, but it's not if you're doing a course where it's, you know, like we've had the same markers at a lot of these lakes, you know, in these bigger races or Hawaii for that instance, but it's more about just finding your personal rhythm and, and for that amount of time, which is a test set, right? Um, it just doesn't have a time attached to it. So can you give me an example of a set you might use for that then say giving an athlete, like, you know, to, to establish that feel. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, the, the most, the simplest would just be like five by 400 with a minute rest. And you're just trying to tick it off at your half Ironman feel, give or take. And then depending on what you're specifically training that athlete for, you might be saying like the pace is more for you get out of the water at the end of those 30 minutes or the end of it. Sorry, I'm using 30 minutes as a ballpark for, but, uh, at the end of that 2k and you're dead, like you couldn't bike or run, or then there's also the, the workout where it's the exact same thing, except you want to be able to get out and then have a good T1 and then like roll right in. And then there's a different conversation attached to both of those efforts, even though it's the exact same workout and you're doing it for the same distance, but it's a different feeling at the end of the swim. Gotcha. Yeah. No, I like that idea where you're doing the swim at a certain intensity so that when you get out, you feel a certain way because it doesn't matter if you swim really fast, if you get out of the pool and you need to like lie down and take a nap and T1. Eh? <laughs> How about you, Jesse? What do you use for, do you have like specific test sets that you use for your athletes? Um, you know, I like, I don't have like one specific set where I'm like, Hey, you do five by 500 and you do them, you know, with 45 seconds rest. And that's, that's the pace you're going to hold. But I do have kind of like a few longer sets like that, that I roll through based on the experience of the athlete. And I'd say that, you know, in general, they get longer with less rest, the more experienced the athlete is. But I, I do think that kind of the, the gist that we're getting at is that it's pretty challenging to say, hey, this is the pace you can hold in the pool. And it's going to directly correlate to an exact pace in open water and give you an exact time. Um, because, you know, the distances are different. You're swimming in open water, as you experienced, like swimming in open water is, is a little bit different and you need to sight and you make sure you're swimming in a straight line. And so all these things make it pretty hard to like nail that exact pace. Um, and, and, you know, like what I've just discovered is, is wetsuits really help. I've been swimming in a wetsuit in a pool lately and it's crazy. I feel like a superhero. I'm never going to take it off. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so there are definitely a lot of variables there, but I, I do like, you know, giving athletes sets where they can try and settle in and, and feel good. And then, you know, you do get like some, some general, like, okay, like, you know, if you're doing this set at X pace, then it's probably going to correlate to, you know, a range of times, like within two or three minutes, probably be around there, which is, you know, kind of what you were in, you, you know, like we said, you had a slight execution thing, which is going to be, again, one of the things we're going to hit on in all three, because that's really, really comes down to, but you probably swam about that effort um, for, for the swim, which was, uh, which was awesome and spot on. And, and again, I think that, you know, not every athlete has, you know, as much race experience as you. So this is definitely something that it's good to make sure that you're guiding your athletes through if they, if they don't have that much race experience to kind of help them understand what it should feel like, what they should feel like after, and then maybe like, you know, using their workouts to say, Hey, this is what you did on the threshold set. This is what you did on like your longer, easy swims. So we kind of use those to extrapolate maybe what a good pace goal slash time might be for you. Exactly. Um, how'd your T1 go? 
Better all that since you've done a T1. Yeah, transitions were hilarious. You know, I really went into this event with the attitude of I, I really wanted to enjoy being out there and having fun with, with all my athletes that were racing. And just, you know, when you race for a living for a long time, it's really, really high stress and every second matters. And, you know, the starts matter, the transitions matter, how you run from the water to your bike matters. Like every little thing is as you know, like real, really, really high stress. And so I had a completely, in fact, to the race morning, when I got down there it was funny. I went into like, like I instantly like set up my bike and everything. I think even though I was relaxed in more, I realized I got it done much more efficiently and assertively than all the other amateurs around me. And I was like, Oh, I can, I can settle down a little bit. Like I, it's funny how you go into that mode pretty quickly. So with transitions, I might've went a little too extreme with that. I, you know, trotted on, I, I used the wetsuit stripper, which was fun. I was like, Oh, these are, these are fun kind of slow, but they're fun. And, um, and then I, you know, trotted over to my bike and took my time and just, you know, enjoyed running through. I didn't try, you know, I didn't have my shoes clipped in. I hadn't done a flying mountain a long time, let alone with water bottle over the back of it. I don't think I'm flexible enough to fly on my bike that much without my hips cramping up. So just, you know, went through like a total little amateur trotting through transition with my bike shoes on my feet and got on my bike and clipped in and started that few seconds for me. It's not like it's going to make or break my day. You know, it, when I was having to race to to feed myself and make a paycheck, every second mattered, especially with the swim that I had. And I had to blast through very high stress at, and, and get on my bike and start racing it as hard as I could, as fast as I could. So I, I, you know, with this race, I didn't, I didn't have that mentality. Obviously it was trot through transition. I did what I knew was safe for me at this stage of my life, which meant, okay, I haven't done any flying mounts in a very long time. I haven't even gotten on my bike with water bottle cages on the bike in a long time. I haven't, you know, so what's the sense in all of a sudden race day when you're a little discombobulated from swimming, you haven't done in a while, there's traffic everywhere, flying through and wobbling along and possibly crashing. I mean, that would be slower than anything. So I just very efficiently threw on my shoes and trotted through transition, got to the start line and got on my bike like I do every single day and, you know, made sure my bike was in the right gear when I started. So I wasn't overgeared. <laughs> you know, little so, things, sense, sensible approach. <laughs> the most important thing in my perspective from what you just said is if you haven't done something in training at least once, but hopefully two, three, four times, please do not do it in a race. And if you are going to do something you haven't done in training, and you have an expectation on that, uh, you're crazy. You know, like whether it's a new kit, it's a new wheel, it's a new bike, it's a new fuel source, right? It's a new pacing strategy, you know, sighting. If you don't ever sight in practice and you only swim in a pool and all those swim times we were talking about, and you're like, well, I never swim continuously. I don't sight and I only swim in a 23 yard gym pool. I got news for you. Your times don't correlate. Um, and, and that's going to, we're going to get into the bike, but if you only ever ride Zwift, you know, and the TT bars, but you're inside and your bike never rocks back and forth, your lower back is, I mean, I'm picking on lower backs, but 
something about your bike and how your bike, your body matches with your bike is not going to correlate to outside when there's people around you and there's stress of, of all these different things. And I think that's a really big thing with expectation is you have to have done something that's at least moderately similar um, to the race situation, preferably multiple times before you can have a realistic expectation of how something might pan out in the actual race. And so I, I think that's quite important. And that's a, a big factor for no matter what style of race you're doing. Practicing works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Practicing works and practicing specifically works. But I think, but the thing you, but the thing you said is you were like, well, yeah, there's things I know how to do, but I hadn't done them. So why on earth you're like, yeah, I know I used to be good at this, but I haven't done it recently, which means I'm not, like, could you pull it off? Like you, Marilyn, could you have pulled it off? The, the answer is probably better than the, the average person who's never done it. You would, your odds of doing it would be a hundred times better than theirs, but you still knew that was a bad decision to even try because you hadn't spent enough time and you're realistic with yourself. And that puts you in a, in a much better situation to, I'm, I'm sure get on the bike and kind of get in right into your bike plan right, right away. Um, so I, I think that sort of thing is always good to, good to hear. Exactly. Exactly. So let's move on to the bike. Let's hear it. Um, what was your, what was your plan going in and then how did that pan out? Yeah. You know, the bike is something like I had mentioned earlier is that it, I, I've spent the most consistent time on over the years. I took that extended break when I retired from racing professionally for about five years, but so that was what, 2012, I took a, about five years off and then got back on and spent you know, the last number of years doing bike races and, you know, masters nationals and all that. So I felt confident and I, and I ride my bike a lot, you know, I live in Tucson, we have a great bike community. It's something I love to do. And so that's something that if I'm going to, if I'm going to do just in my week to week life, it's riding my bike. So, and I ride the thing about living in a place like Tucson is you just to get around the group rides and have be out there with your riding pals, you have to ride pretty decent. So my expectations for the bike were much higher than the swim and the run. It's something I do a lot, something I really like. It's something that even in the recent years I've raced, you know, some fast TTs, that kind of thing. So even though I hadn't, I knew I was going to run afterwards and I haven't done a swim before a ride in a long time. I, I took those into consideration. Okay. Well, I haven't, you know, done swim to bike and I still have to run afterwards. So I knew I couldn't tackle it like a, <laughs> you know, 40 kilometer time trial. However, I do a lot of, and even in my preparation, I did at least once a week where I was in my aero bars for two and a half hours at a pretty strong effort, you know, heart rate sitting between 160 to in sections. Uh, we got a loop here called Wednesday worlds. I was showing up on Wednesday worlds on my TT bike. I do the whole loop 160, 170 heart rate aside from the little sections we didn't and, and um, really practice being able to stay tight and arrow and get up the climbs really, really arrow, really boogie on the descents. It was fun. I had a good group of pals that would sit behind me and they're like, thanks for the fun motor pace with barely any draft. You're so little, but it was, you know, it was, I, I, I had spent a lot of time going fast on my bike. And so my goal for the race was I don't have power on my TT bike. I do use power and training on my road bike, but uh, I haven't invested just for reasons, you know, no, no reason in particular that is to do with performance that I don't have power on my TT bike, but I have, 
I, I threw a heart rate monitor strap on because I know what my heart rates are in correlation to my power and what it should look like and where my red zones are. And, and so my expectations were, I want to ride this course as technically fast as I possibly can. And, and I thought if I'm going to push myself somewhere, this is where I really know how to do it. And I knew, I know how to ride the climb strong and hard without blowing myself up. And I knew I could do that. Even here, we do it for 80 miles around the shootout, 65 miles, you know, Wednesday worlds, that kind of thing. So I had confidence. I'd done a lot of riding. I had confidence I could ride my TT bars hard for a long time. But I also know that riding the downhills fast with my skill level was going to be better than a lot of people. Um, just, I have a lot of experience at that and I'm pretty low on that little TT bike. It's an old P2. It's not anything fancy. I don't have fancy race wheels. I don't even have, I didn't even wear an aero helmet. I just wore what I wear every day in training, but I can get really, really little. And I know how to ride fast lines and I know how to ride downhill pretty fast. And so that was my goal. Ride the uphills, just like you do in the, in the group rides, stay as aero and technically fast as possible around this course as I can without knowing every corner turn. And you know, just really, really ride the TT, the course, just like I do in, you know, I'd done in training, which I had a lot of confidence, like I said, I had confidence in that because of what I'm able to do around here in Tucson. So that was, that was the part of the race I was excited for. And I, and I put a lot of, I pressed myself little, like when I was, you know, if I saw a downhill or a stretch ahead, I was trying to be technically as fast as I possibly could be in every moment. And I really kept challenging myself with that. That's where I, you know, put some pressure on myself. And so how'd that play out? Do you feel like you executed that pretty well? I do. There were certain sections where I just simply didn't know the course. Like I think my, honestly, my goal was to ride and everyone's times they said were a little slower than before. I checked out a few times from before. They said, uh, you know, everyone's times for whatever reason, it was kind of weird, were a little bit slower than years previous. I had wanted to ride somewhere, depending on wind, because I know it can be quite windy on that course, but I wanted to ride somewhere between 230 and 242. That was my goal going in. I thought if I can ride somewhere between 230 and 242, that'll be a good ride on this course for, you know, for where I'm at. I'm 45 years old you know, and, and like all of the things that I just listed. And I ran, I rode, um, 239. So I was right, you know, pretty much right in that ballpark. And there were certain downhills and sections that had I known the course better, I would have ridden a lot more aggressively. I just thought that maybe there was a corner coming up or there was a lot of pylons or something. So I thought, well, this, maybe this is a slower section, but you know, now that I saw it once, I know I could have, I could have zoomed through them a heck of a lot faster and probably been closer to 235. So, um, you know, within I'm, 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 I'm splitting hairs there, but I think, you know, the difference between 239 and 235 is significant when you know how to execute a course and, you know, certain sections and they were specifically like narrow downhill sections where I know I could have been traveling a lot faster. That doesn't mean higher Watts. That doesn't mean a higher FTP. That doesn't mean anything like that. It just means I could have zoomed a lot faster and technically faster through those sections had I, had I known them or ridden them before. Um, and so I guess for, for the athletes takeaway, the athletes you work with, do you, do you try and do anything more specific to help them? Like, do you help them with power targets 
or do you kind of give, do you like that kind of like, Hey, this is how I want you to approach the race as far as like heart rate and, and effort, or I guess, do you do power targets? And then do you do any sort of like, again, like test set or preparation set to, to give them some confidence or idea on how that power feels? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And like I say, here in Tucson, it happens a little bit more organically, but there was a lot of thought and structure within that. Like I started doing uh, several times where I would go from mile zero to Molino Basin, which was a 30 minute threshold effort once a week. I was doing specific hill reps once a week at a certain power target that I knew would be similar to some of the climbs in St. George. Uh, and so that's very similar to what I might give someone, even if they're on their trainer at home. So yes, I was using like the shootout on Saturday and Wednesday, and for a, a long, hard group ride and Wednesday worlds for my time trial ride. But Tuesdays and Thursdays, I was, I was doing very specific sets that were similar to what I would give my athletes, like six by six minute hill reps at threshold effort, a 30 minute continuous threshold effort, you know, at a certain power, power range. And then, you know, it was only a 90 minute ride or even, I think sometimes it was only one hour ride, but that 30 minute effort, I went at threshold and tried to finish strong, came down off the mountain and ran off my bike for 20 minutes. So those types of sessions are sessions that I give my athletes. And then we know based on that, you know, where are we, as far as being prepared, they might get something different. They don't have the shootout on Saturdays, but they might get a very specific half Ironman workout, like a two and a half hour ride with four by 20 minutes at their half Ironman power and then a run off the bike. So not that different. I just have a little bit more access to some fun things here in Tucson that I like. I might not even ever send my athletes on the shootout. I just do it because my pals are there and I want to see them. <laughs> Elliot, I see you shaking your head a lot. Oh, I'm just listening and agreeing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I really don't have much to add to that. I think that the only thing that really comes off is, it's just the same thing as kind of the, the swim and what you had said you do a group ride and you have a pretty good idea because you are doing some workouts but you're also doing these long hard group rides and because you've done enough uh specific Ironman half Ironman training in the past it doesn't take you as many data points to have a really good idea of where your goal is but a lot of people who are newer to the sport or who you know in newer often sometimes means four or five years is still quote unquote newer in the sense of knowing what the heck your effort is. If, if you do two half Ironmans a year for four or five years, you've done eight races, which is by all accounts, a lot, but also it's not that many data points. And I think that's the hardest part about this sport. When you only get so many chances to get race practice, it's really hard to then have an honest conversation with yourself. And that's the one thing you have in your back pocket that allows you to do group rides, but still have a real honest talk about what could you actually do based off these few data points. And, and that's the hardest part for people who hear a constant stream of so-and-so did X, Y, Z, and then they raced like ABC and back and forth. And, and you kind of have to take the step back and say, how many data points do they have? If you're going to talk about like the quote unquote Norwegians, which we don't have to get too much into, they just have a lot of data points. And that's the one thing you're like, Oh, they're able to do like, they're not doing anything special at all. They just have paid staff and they spend over a hundred grand per person a year on science. So they have tons of data points and that's what most people don't have, right? Most of us, we get a couple of data points a year and we really have to pay attention to them. Um, and they're important. 
And that's, I, that's really valuable. And, and you're exactly right. I have so much information on my cycling between my cycling career and my triathlon career since 1999. I know what certain things feel like. And I knew what they felt like in my very, very best shape and what they feel like realistic to the athlete I am today, which are two different people. I mean, they're two completely different human beings. And yeah. I, and I know how to translate that into not only what I am today, what I put into it today, but also, you know, what my mental approach is and my goal and, and why I'm doing it. You know, even just that simply in itself changes how fast you're going to, then I needed to do it to get to the front of the race. Well, that's wholly really different because I needed to pay my bills. And now I just wanted to execute as fast a course as I possibly could based on my age and my training and my lifestyle and, and who I am today as an athlete and not have done, done it in a long time. Um, the one thing I wanted to talk a little bit about this is that I see a lot of athletes who kind of start doing hero math in the, the last 10 days before the race where they're, they're tapered, they're starting to feel good. And, you know, maybe for us as like coaches, that's all part of the plan and that's how they're going to be able to hold Watts for the entire ride. But, you know, then, you know, as you start to feel better, you start saying, oh, well, I think I can ride 20 Watts harder because, this is how it feels now. And it felt so much different in training. And, and so, you know, I like, I like to call it hero math where all of a sudden three days out, you're changing your race plan and tacking on a lot more Watts and, and just thinking that like, you know, since now you're tapered, it's going to just kind of magically work out that much better. And, um, you know, from experience in failing, uh, using hero math many times, it doesn't tend to work that way. Um, and, and I, I mean, I see Elliot laughing because I know he can attest to that. Um, seeing a lot of my, my races. Too many times, too many times. Yeah. <laughs> but and, I mean, the point is it's a fine line. Uh, well, I guess it's not the main point, but def- quitting before you start is a pretty bad idea. So I think everyone needs a little bit of ambition and it's a fine line between ambition and like thinking diehard is real life, you know, and like you can't, certain things are a bridge too far and where that line is, is real tricky. And our job is at, as coaches is basically to hear someone's cockamamie idea and be like, deep breath, let's back it off two steps, two small steps. That doesn't mean you're not being aggressive. It's just, you just told me you wanted to eat seven scoops of ice cream and you just had a big dinner and two is plenty kind of deal. Um, and, and kind of finding that sweet spot. And I think that's a really, that's, that's where like, I mean, essentially that's our jobs, right? Day to day. And then the, the opposite side of that is hearing the person who's quite timid in, in, or maybe timid's the wrong word, but they're like really based on like, I will only try to do X if I have clear cut proof that I've already done it seven times. And you're like, well, the whole point of a race is the race is your best race, your best workout of the year, right? Essentially, it's your best. You want to be on your best on that day. So you kind of have to nudge them higher and finding that that common ground, depending on their personality. And with more experience, we narrow that gap. But anyways, Jesse, I kind of cut you off. No, you're good. I, I guess the the conclusion of my hero math was that like, you know, this is fuzzy, but for 70.3, 10 watts is, you know, approximately two minutes. I know there's a huge amount of factors in how those watts are laid out, but, but you know, you're looking at adding 10 watts to your, you know, your normalized power, and that's only going to get you two minutes. So, you know, I guess 
not doing what I've done lots of times and adding on 20 or 40 watts to the beginning and then crashing and burning. Because thinking about like, what's the best case scenario if you add 10 watts and maybe it's two minutes faster, but the worst case scenario is a lot worse. So um, I just, it's a good thing to keep in mind, I guess, that like, if, if you're, if you're trying to have a stretch goal, like, and thinking about how much time it's actually going to get you when you're, when you're adding on a little bit more power and then how much, how much energy it's going to cost you to, to do that. It might not be worth it. And it goes the other way too, right. For if someone is like, you know, just needs a little more confidence and maybe there needs to be some workouts that where they do ride that 10 watts harder in order to try and get there. But, um, but yeah, two minutes isn't very much and 10 watts is a lot. The other thing that I'll share with you, and we all know this, but it's just a good reminder for everyone, is that the execution of the course, so some of the things that I saw that I, while I was out there, was the, from the mount line to, let's say, the section where we actually get out on open road. So let's say the first three to five minutes. I saw a lot of athletes in their aero bars just hammering it, and you know, literally by the time we got 10 minutes into the course or 15 minutes into the course where we're going up the first climb, I went past them. I mean, I went, I went past them and plenty of others and caught up to people who had swam two minutes faster than me by the top of the first climb, which was like 15 minutes into the race. And I literally, you know, you spent with experience, you know, Hey, this first five minutes. And I tell my athletes all this time, this all the time. when we talk about their pre-race plan, like, Hey, that first three to five minutes, just Make sure your bike's in the right gear. Just get on your bike. Yes, get it moving quickly, but settle yourself in. You know, get into your time trial position, but just relax, get your breathing, get your rhythm. You know, there's there's going to be sections that it's really important to ride fast. And this is not it. On the flip side of that, I saw a lot of athletes, like some pretty big, strong dudes that they, on the downhills that were wide open downhills, they were coasting. They weren't even pedaling. And they were just, they were in their aero bars, but they weren't even pedaling. And I would be like, on your left, on your left, and like zooming past them. Just, I was like, why aren't they, this this is a big dude. Like, why is he, you know, drilling it on the uphill and then not even pedaling on the downhill? Like you could just, in your execution, understanding where to place your efforts. And that doesn't necessarily mean putting out more watts, but that's what we're talking about is, okay, we're talking about expectations but also execution once you have those expectations like in that first five minutes is not the time to be in your aero bars going max effort and if you use who you are as an athlete to execute your best race which might be if you're you know a a a six foot two 170 pound plus guy probably if you're in a race where there's lots of downhills that's going to be a place where you can make up a lot of time and ground by, or anybody really, I mean, doesn't matter how big you are, just, just pedal on the downhills, right? <laughs> just, just keep pedaling. You don't have to put out a lot more Watts or energy, but you can lower your heart rate, you can eat and all that stuff, but just keep pedaling. So uh, it, as long as it's a wide open descent that allows you to do that. And if you have equipment that doesn't allow you to stay in your aero bars and it doesn't allow you to keep pedaling, reassess the equipment that you're using on that you can actually handle to keep pedaling and stay in your arrow bars because that's going to be faster than sitting up and being afraid and wobbling around and not able to actually do that. So all of these things are important as far as expectations, race execution, how you practice, all of those things. And that's going to set you up for your fast stride. Like I said, I didn't have it. I'm not, I wasn't running anything fancy because I was going into this with the approach of 
as an amateur having fun. So I didn't upgrade to a massive aero helmet and disc brakes and a brand new TT bike and all of that. It was just, this is what I got, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, I tend to think about like, um, you know, you have maybe your target power for the race and then, you know, maybe you have, okay, a little leeway, like you can go 10% over 10% under. So you're, if you're on the downhill, you should still be pedaling. Maybe you're only trying to go like, you know, 10% under what your race squats are, but you're still like pushing on the pedals, you know, you're not freewheeling. And then when you're going uphill, you're trying to only go, you know, let's call it 10% over. You're not trying to go absolutely ballistic. And you know, that, that percent might be different for everyone, but just good to have like some parameters as far as like, Hey, I kind of want to stay within this range, but that does mean there is a low end of the range, right. Where you're like, I mean, you know, granted like a screaming downhill, but you're trying to always kind of keep it, keep it in there the whole time. Yeah. Um, do you guys, do you have any other things you do to help people like get prepared or know that they're ready for a specific effort on the bike or do you feel like kind of covered getting athletes set with expectations? I think the one thing we've, uh, we need to discuss is the 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 expectation of the distraction of the race and how other athletes on course will affect you and how that might affect your pacing you didn't say it directly earlier jesse but when you were talking about your races in the past and how like your watts change it's more like the person's physical psychology and their their preparation for handling the fact that some bozo inevitably is going to go sprinting by you out of t1 way, way, way too fast. Right. Or like, how does that affect your cornering? Marilyn, you were just talking about descents. Okay. You're not, let's say you get to the point where you're comfortable in the arrow bars on a descent. Are you comfortable in the arrow bars on the descent in bad weather? Are you comfortable in the arrow bars on the descent when someone's passing you or you are passing people and having a realistic expectation of how to execute those situations? The biggest thing I've had over my career as a coach is uh, coaching an elite female professional who is essentially mixing it up with the fastest age group men who maybe started two minutes behind. Right. And a lot of those guys are pacing pretty crazy and are often trying to slot in and aren't sure how to handle the situation. Um, and, and I've also, you know, had that conversation from the other side of like, you're expecting to win the amateur race uh, on the men's side. And how do you, interact with motorcycles and how does that change your pacing strategy and being prepared for those realistically and understanding there's going to be times where you have to take a back seat and ride safer or ride fairly. And then having spots where you can push harder and realizing that means your net power at the end of the day might be lower, but it's always better to come into transition well-fueled and calm and 10 seconds slower than 20 seconds too fast, extremely stressed and under fuel and having a real, really good idea of like how your power should be spread out with all of those factors, not just necessarily like the course itself, but all of those external factors that a lot of people don't think about, such as motorcycles and, and weather and your fellow competition is one of the biggest ones. Yeah, that's so true. Cause I, I, you know, for me, I do so much bike racing and have for so long and so much pack riding. I'm really comfortable. I mean, a random 10 people spread nicely throughout the road that I just have to pass a couple pylons and, you know, no ask, people, ask people nicely, Hey, passing on your left. That's, that's pretty low stress for me. You know, I'm used to being in a pack of 
a hundred people and I don't mind bumping and pushing, shoving and rubbing wheels and stuff. So, and like avoiding rocks in the road that you can't see. And I can never see anything. Cause I'm usually behind a lot of, you know, taller people than me and all that stuff and hitting water bottles and staying upright. And so, you know, that's, those, those are high stress situations for me, but having, you know, a few pylons on the left, a nicely marked wide open road with a few, you know, 10, 10 competitors or so that when you yell on your left, they move right nicely. That's very low stress for me, for me, but someone else who only ever rides the trainer or only ever rides alone and in on wide open roads, pylons and other competitors and aid stations and downhills and wind could be very high stress for them. So that's where my expectations, right, were, I can, this is very low stress for me. I can handle this. I can be in my aero bars and scoot right alongside the pylons as fast as possible, because that's, that's not high stress for me. For someone else, that is high stress. So you set your expectations according to what your exposure has been. And one thing you guys both mentioned, but I want to kind of um, stress is that you guys both talked a little bit about like eating and, and just kind of like how that's important during the ride. But I will say that's one thing where, you know, maybe in like a test set or practice, if you're doing something like six by 20 minutes or something with, with breaks and you're only, you're only eating and drinking during the breaks, you're not actually practicing fueling while going hard, that that's going to be, you know, that's going to can be a game changer if you can't grab bottles or you can't fuel while you're working as hard as you want to be working in the, in the half. And, and so making sure you've kind of practiced that because that's, that kind of goes in the execution bucket, but that's going to really change how fast you can ride the back half of the race. And obviously like set, setting up for the run, but like making sure you actually can do that. And, you know, you've practiced being able to do that under load, like doing, you know, a pretty long continuous effort, you know, maybe it's not all the way at race effort, but maybe it's a little bit lower or something and making sure you can actually take in fuel while you're doing that um, in order to be able to actually execute well and not have to totally stop pedaling in order to, you know, snack. Yeah, that's uh, and same thing for, for me being in my aero bars with all the luxury of no other riders around you to at speed, just grab back and grab a bottle or grab a gel whenever I want is considerably less stress than, you know, going up sprint Hill, you know, grabbing back in my Jersey pocket with, you know, 50 people around you trying to hold a wheel and, and slam a gel down while snot's coming out of your nose and you're flailing around. So it's, you know, it's definitely, I was like, this is much lower stress than what I'm used to trying to jam nutrition in. So, um, so yeah, fair, you know, definitely something to practice and understand where you're, where you're at with that stuff. Um, onto the run. Yeah, run. You know what's funny is race morning. So this is where always check all your stuff. It'd been so long since I'd done a triathlon and I don't really run with a watch. I just take my phone with me and use Strava as my clock. And I know a lot of the routes and how long they take me. I run, I run a lot of the same stuff in training all the time. Uh, I have a philosophy when you're older and you're injury prone, you should keep things the same a lot and that will help you stay injury free. Uh, so I do that. And so I hadn't, I just wanted to use a, a a real old Timex stopwatch to keep an eye on my runtime. And that morning I woke up for the race and I hadn't checked the watch when I packed it before I left. And it was, it was dead. It was old. It had died. So <laughs> I had no watch, <laughs> no watch at all, which was fine because I don't, you know, although I run with us with my uh, phone, I don't ever look at my phone. I, you know, I do usually at least have 
some idea of the time. But um, like I said, I knew from the training I had done what to expect out of my run. One, running is the hardest for me. Two, I've taken the most amount of breaks from running. I hadn't run two hours and this was a very hilly course. I hadn't really, I hadn't run any hills. I just run on the river path here in Tucson, which is flat. And I hadn't run off the bike very much. In fact, I did two runs off the bike and both of them were only 20 minutes long. And so my goal for going into this race was you're better to show up and show up with no injuries than to show up and have done all that and not get to run or be running with an injury. Cause I've run a lot with injuries and in races and it's, it's hard and it's painful and I don't want to do that anymore. And I don't see the sense in doing that. And in, at this stage in my life, it's also slower, you know? So my goal was with my current history with running and the most amount of breaks and knowing my body, I knew what run training I could do and stay injury free. And so my number one goal was show up at the race without an injury. You're going to run faster without an injury and being able to actually race than if you do too much too fast and all of these things and not actually even get to race. So I was pretty underprepared, but I knew most of my runs that were, let's say around nine or 10 miles, I was trotting along pretty comfortably around nine, nine and a half minute mile pace all the time. Easy runs, long runs, day-to-day -day runs. Whenever I'd run, I was running right around nine, nine and a half minute mile pace. So I was like, well, I think based on what I've been able to do, I will run right around. I know what nine to nine and a half minute mile pace was. So I thought on this hilly course, if I can run right around two hours, haven't run off the bike a whole lot, but knowing my body, knowing what I've done, I could probably pull off right around two hours. And I ran 158, <laughs> no watch. And, you know, I know how to fuel on the run. I know how to open it up on the downhills. I know how to pace myself and control the effort on the uphills and, you know, I had the one staple session I did throughout since I started running again, this whole last, um, you know, when I decided to do this race was every Tuesday, I'd do a turnover run on the treadmill and I would do, you know, 20 minutes worth of between seven minute and 630 pace. Does that mean I can run seven minute miles off the bike for 13 miles on a hilly course, uh, you know, and after a swim and bike? No, I'm not going to run seven minute miles. Those were my turnover pace, my 10 mile runs, my long runs, my day-to-day -day easy runs, they were nine, nine and a half minute mile pace. So I thought, okay, yeah, if I can hold nine minute mile pace around this course, then, then I'll have done right around what I think I can do in training and what I've been able to put in the race, but put into my preparation. Awesome. Um, Elliot, what do you do specifically to help athletes with expectations on the run? I mean, <clears throat> so much of run expectation to me is about swim, bike, endurance, and fueling, and swim and bike pacing, and speed and triathlon, even at the highest level, is like, it still just comes down to what situation are you in at the start of the run? Cause that allows you to like how much of your run speed can you access? Right. And, and so then there's, there's like how much of your run speed can you access? How good? And, and that's the baseline of the beginning of a, uh, a run pacing or expectation conversation. And most people just don't have that conversation. And so every run is always prefaced by 
did you go too hard in the swim? Did you go too hard in the bike? Were you too stressed in the bike? Were you, were you in a good bike position? Were you, you know, were, were you dehydrated? Did you eat enough, but you ate too late, you know, and how is all that sitting in your stomach? And that has nothing to do with running, but then it's, that's the beginning of the conversation. So you have to do this big, long conversation about what position are you in when you start the run? And then from there, if you, if you check all those boxes, you can have a pretty honest conversation with your actual run workouts and your run speeds, and you can have a, a really good picture. But if you don't have that preface, that baseline, I don't even talk about run paces because I'm like, you don't have your shit together in the beginning. So who the heck cares? We're just trying to get to the finish line. Right. And then it's more about like just making sure you're leaving the beginning of T2 in one piece and you're calm and then recognizing, you know, like half Ironmans and Ironmans, it's almost impossible to negative split. Right. Um, you can do it, but it's, it's very uncommon for that length of race to actually have a negative split. And then it also begs the question, is that even the most efficient way to, you know, certainly with an Ironman, an actual negative split on the run probably means you left a lot of time out there. Um, so, so I'm not really answering your question, but that's how I frame it. And then you get into the actual run workouts, but to having a true, I can have X, Y, Z pace without all that precursor, it's so hard to do. Um, and then a lot of it is again, kind of how I frame the swim, which is, it's more about rhythm and kind of knowing yourself. And then the, in the Ironman in particular, it's knowing how durable is my body. Cause you can't have an expectation on a run pace. If you've never run over 13 miles and you're doing a half, if you're doing a marathon, right. You, it's, it's a big unknown. So that's, that's that, how I frame a lot of it. You know what you're, you hit one really important point there, Elliot, is that, um, you know, I, the back, the second loop of the course, I felt like I could actually run a lot faster. I felt pretty good. I was really relaxed and felt good. Sure. But I hadn't run that long yet. Uh, and I hadn't exercised continuously for that amount of time in a day in a very long time. And I was quite concerned about my quads cramping in the last, the last quarter. And I thought the worst thing that can happen is, well, I feel good here. I'm on the second loop. Say I open it up to eight minute miles, which I felt like I could have. But if my quads cramp the last two miles and I'm walking, this isn't a very fast half anymore. Now I'm like 220 or something like that. Right. So I thought, well, I'll just stay like this because I know I'll get to the finish line like this at this pace. But if I open it up, even though I was already on the second lap and I was not that far from the finish, you know, I hit mile eight and I was like, oh, I think I could, you know, mile seven, mile eight. I was like, I feel, I felt pretty good. I was pretty relaxed, but that didn't mean that I knew if my quads were going to hold out on that long downhill at, you know, hour, I hadn't, I hadn't exercised. I hadn't done a 13 mile run and, and like five and a half hours of exercise in a very long time. So I thought, well, that would be, that would be the worst case, right? Like all of a sudden the last two miles, I'm, my quads are cramped and I'm walking. So that's where you're making decisions on the fly based on what you did in preparation. So sometimes even in a race, you're like, oh, I feel great. I'm getting close to the end. I'll blast it. Well, hold on a second. Like you said, you know, I hadn't done, I hadn't done that yet in a long time. So like, make sure that you stay true to where you're at so that you get yourself to the finish line as fast as you possibly can in line with what you've been able to put into the race. 
And yeah, I mean, believe me, five miles is plenty of time to, uh, to blow up and walk it in. That's, uh, that's a lot of real estate left to just open it up and, and, and hope. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that was I well jogged four miles given. yesterday. Sorry, Elliot. I said I jogged four miles yesterday, and I fully agree that if I had gone that one extra mile, who knows what would have happened. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, so it's definitely good to kind of stay within yourself. And I, I talk to my athletes a lot about that, like uh, that that RPE, that feeling of what it should feel like when you get to the run, and and just kind of trusting that feeling because. Yeah. Like, like Elliot said, and kind of like you said, like the, the pace, I mean, I'm sure your pace was fluctuating on the uphills and downhills that you weren't like sick, sticking nine fifteens the entire time. Um, but you were kind of staying within yourself in both directions and, and staying in like that kind of comfortably hard zone. And I think, you know, you had a really dialed in feel that put you at like exactly what you predicted. And even if an athlete doesn't have that, they still probably have that feel from their long runs and they know kind of like, Hey, this is, this is like sustainably hard. And I think that, yeah, like maybe even like you, you didn't wear a watch and that worked out really well, right? Maybe not getting, becoming a slave to the pace, but like being a slave to how you feel so that you can kind of use that and, and use that as your guide the, the whole time is, can be a much better way since, you know, you guys both talk about how, how hard it is to nail run pacing and especially in a plan because you don't know how you're going to show up. And you also don't know, like, you know, it's going to be probably a longer day and or a harder day than you're used to. So exactly how that's going to be pace wise can change a lot. But the, you know, I think the biggest takeaway on run pacing is that walking is slow. So avoid that. <laughs> Slowest thing you can do all day is walk. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, there's always the porta potty. That's true. Still, I mean, I've hit porta potties and still run okay. But uh, <laughs> the walking is, uh, yeah, it takes a long time. Yeah. It's when you have that 20 minute conversation in the porta potty. That's, that's when it really takes a chunk out of the time. Yeah. I don't like to hang you out You look there. disgusted. <laughs> Nobody does, Jesse. Nobody in, does. in and out, in and out. Come on. Especially in a place like Texas. It's hot. <laughs> oh boy. Oh yeah. boy. Uh, fun stuff guys. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for chatting with me about this. I think, you know, it's probably the one place where, people struggle the most is setting expectations for what they're going to do in a race based on what they, I think the number one things are what's your training been, what's your current athletic state, you know, what you're, what you're able to truly, have you truly been able to put into the race and, and who you are as an athlete at this time in your life, you know, and that can change. That can fluctuate even from month to month or three months or six months or a year or 10 years or two decades, but you know, it changes. And so it's really important to stay true to that. And, and, you know, if you figure it out based on hopefully some of these helpful tips, but also good, good team members around you, and hopefully you have good coaches or reach out to one of us and we can help you really steer in the right direction. And that sets you up for success, right? Because because of that, you 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 go into it and you say, yeah, I'm going to push myself. I'm going to go as hard as I can, but I know what to expect and execute it to the best of my ability. And then that's going to allow me to have a great day or make some mistakes and learn from them and then push yourself you know, to the next level in, in your next go around or your next training phase. And, and that can be fun and motivating and, you know, really a, a great experience. But as they say, it all starts with a plan. <laughs> right. Uh, thank you guys for spending the hour with me. It was fun. 
Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Elliot. See you guys next yeah, time. Take care, guys. Bye.